Katie and I have this game that we like to play sometimes, which is, what will we do if there's a zombie apocalypse? Does anybody else do that? Come up with their zombie apocalypse plans? Maybe it's just us. I don't know. Okay. Uh, but we'll be like, well, where would we go? Where would we live? Would we stay here? Would it be better to be in a populated area? Would we go? We've kind of landed on, we'd probably go up to my parents' house because they're up in northern Wisconsin, lower population. You can, you know, we could garden and whatnot. My dad has a lot of guns, more guns than a lot of guns. <laughs> if you're thinking 20 is a lot, just think higher. He has a lot of guns. So I think we'd be pretty set up there. That'd be a good place to go. My mom has chickens, um, so that works out. But really what we want to do is be ready if disaster comes. And that's a fake one. But we do this in our life all the time. I want to be ready in the future if disaster comes. So I'm going to have life insurance. I'm going to have a retirement plan. I'm going to have a will. I'm going to do doctor checkups to make sure everything's going okay with my body because I want to be prepared. I'm going to make eating decisions so that in the future I'm you know, making small decisions now so that in the future I'm going to have this, this payoff I'm going to be taken care of. And that's what we want to know. Am I going to be taken care of or am I going to be unprepared or am I going to be caught off guard? And so we make lots of decisions now to do something that is going to pay off in the future. There are little things we do now that will pay off later, like we do you know, investments in our retirement. Uh, we do uh, uh, put money into insurance every month so that there's a big payout uh, later when we're going to really need it. And there's this sense of long-term investing and impatience uh, that we want to be, I need, I'm doing this now, I'm going to be patient. But we also are very impatient people. We want things now. I mean, Amazon Prime, uh, where we got, we gotten very used to two-day shipping. Sometimes it's like, I just ordered that at 7 p.m. last night. How is it already here the next morning? And it's like, how, I couldn't wait for five days. Five days for something to get to my house? Like, that's just too long. And we have microwaves, we have fast food, and we like to go on things for our health that are supposed to act quickly. It's like we, sometimes we don't like those long-term investments. We just want it to be now, I want it done now, I want it to happen now. And oftentimes, you know, thinking about, like, when people look back on their lives, you know, we make these investments now, and then when people get to the end of when they're making all those investments for, when they look back on their lives, what do they often regret? I've been told sometimes it's not that I regret giving, you know, I mean, it could be a regret I didn't give as much of my retirement as I should have, or I regretted doing X or, you know, filling out a will or this, and those things are true. But lots of people on their deathbeds, I'm told, uh, will regret, why did I spend so much time working? Why did I spend so much time doing this and that and not in these relationships, these people that are around my bed now that now I'm going to die and I'm not going to see them uh, after this. And so we do these investments in the future and then we, you know, how much we work, how much money we save, what we do with it. And then are we going to look back when we get to that point and think, yes, I did that well. And today we're kicking off a new series that is simply called Psalms of Summer, uh, that we're just going to be going through various psalms. They're going to be guest preachers for the next nine weeks, and to have a sort of continuity between everything and connection, they're all going to be doing psalms. Bob's going to be doing one, Brian's going to be doing one, a couple uh, other pastors that I know are going to be doing some, and so there's a great lineup of preachers for the next eight weeks, and psalms kind of give this connection point. And psalms are a very unique book in the Bible because... Um, some people have said, well, all the other books are mostly God talking to his people, but the Psalms are God's people talking to God, that they give us words when maybe we don't know how to express something. Like, I'm so mad, God, I'm so scared, or I'm so happy. And it could give us words of this is what God wants us to bring to him, to bring our whole hearts to him, to pour our hearts out before him. And it gives us language when we don't know what to say. 
And the psalm today, why I picked this one, the title of psalm, a song for the Sabbath, is because uh, this, starting tomorrow, Katie and I are going to be on an eight-week sabbatical. So last week we just talked about Sabbath in, in general and through the Bible, and today doing this psalm. And the word sabbatical comes from the word Sabbath, which is uh, just a Hebrew word translated into English. And so what this is is an extended period of rest. The Sabbath is one day per week. You work six days. The seventh day is a day of rest to stop your work, to replenish, to renew, uh, refuel, recenter. Uh, but then what often happens in churches with pastors is that there's a, a time after so many years of service that there's a sabbatical. So you have that one day every week, but then after you know five, six, seven years, then you have a sabbatical, which is like, okay, this is the time to stop your ministry work, to rest, to be renewed, uh, to have refreshment. And the Sabbath, as I said, is there's six days for work, and there's one day to rest. And this is grounded in creation that God, it says the earth was created in six days, and the seventh day God rested, and then he blessed it and made it holy. And then we follow that same pattern of six days of work and then one day of rest uh, from that work. And it's not a day just to be done um, individually, but it's actually a day to do it corporately as, as a church body, as a church family. Leviticus 23.3 talks about how the Sabbath is a day of rest where the people of God come together to worship God. They come together as an assembly to bring themselves before God uh, and to worship God together. And what I was asking when I was looking at Psalm 92, it's titled A Psalm, A Song for the Sabbath, is, well, why is this psalm in particular fitting for the Sabbath? Why are the words that it goes over fitting to be uh, reviewed? And to, why would the people of God come together and sing this psalm on the Sabbath? How is it fitting and appropriate for the Sabbath? But before we get into that, you know, maybe you're thinking, okay, uh, that's nice, the Sabbath, uh, but that was an Old Testament command, right? Uh, and so Old Testament, that was with Moses, they were under the law. But now Jesus came, and Jesus took, had issues with the Sabbath. He had gotten a lot of debates about them. And so maybe you're thinking, well, that was an Old Testament thing, so why are we talking about the Sabbath today? Uh, why, you know, and you, you might ask, well, uh, I don't see any goats around here to be sacrificed. That's what they did in the Old Testament. So why are we be talking about this other Old Testament practice? And I want to just you know, quickly give you uh, um, let me look. Five quick reasons of why the Sabbath is important for us. And there's lots of different views on the Sabbath. And so I'm not giving you like the definitive answer according to Mitch. Uh, these are more things I see in the Bible, observations, and reasons I think it's worthwhile to practice. And so the first reason it's one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's not like some obscure, random commandment like, oh, let's go look in Numbers chapter, you know, whatever. And like, here's this weird little command about a day we're supposed to rest. No, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's given high priority. It's like God gave the people of Israel the Ten Commandments, and then all the other commandments were just basically telling them how do you live out these Ten Commandments uh, in real life. And <clears throat> Jesus, when he's asked what the two greatest commandments are, he says, well, it's to love God and love others. And you can break down the Ten Commandments into the first four being how you love God, and the last six how you love other people. And so basically the Sabbath comes down to loving God, uh, and, and on the Sabbath, you do love other people as well because you give them a break from their work. But so like these are like high-priority commands. Um, so it's one of the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> a way to love God and love others. Second, it's given first at creation, not to the nation of Israel. Sabbath is first given at creation, not to the nation of Israel. And so you might say, well, this is for Israel. Well, actually, God made it for all creation, and then Israel, uh, God 
taught them, I want you to keep this to show people what I'm like, how you're supposed to live with me. So it's given at creation, not to the nation of Israel. And so it applies to everybody, not just to Israel. Thirdly, Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. I'm just going to flip to one quick passage, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19. I apologize, I don't have the page number, but I'm just going to read how Jesus talks about the Old Testament. So it says this. These are his words. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's referring to a division of the Old Testament. There's the law and there's the prophets, there's the Psalms. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus takes the Old Testament very seriously, saying, you aren't supposed to teach people to relax these things. And he says, uh, before heaven and earth passes away, these, things, these are still going to be there for all of creation, for all of um, as long as those exist. And so all of the New Testament upholds the goodness and the importance of the, the Old Testament laws. Uh, the New Testament also says, but they were weak. They weren't able to save. They weren't able to transform anybody. But they talked about it as good and important and righteous. And so if we want to take Jesus seriously, we need to take the Old Testament seriously. And that doesn't mean we practice every law as it was written because cultural circumstances have changed. But the Sabbath is one that can still be practiced today. Fourthly, Jesus didn't abolish it, and no one else does either. And he had lots of, no, and I might say it, Jesus did, doesn't abolish the Sabbath. And he had lots of opportunities to do so. He got into all these debates about the Sabbath, like, hey, your disciples are working, they're not supposed to do that. Or like, hey, you don't heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus never said, well, the Sabbath doesn't matter anymore. I'm doing away with it. I'm fulfilling it, so don't worry about it. He had lots of opportunities as that for that to be his response when people were like, hey, you're doing what's wrong on the Sabbath. He, he could have just said it's not doesn't matter anymore. But his points in the debates was never it doesn't matter anymore, but you're doing it wrong. <laughs> You've lost the primary purpose of it. You've gotten away from what God wanted it to be. And lastly, this would be whether someone's a, a, you know, a believer or not. At the very least, it's good, it's good lifestyle advice from God. At the very least, it's good lifestyle advice from God. I know it might be like, well, God doesn't give advice. That's not how it works. God tells us what to do. But even if it was not commanded, it is good lifestyle advice from God. And we follow people's advice all the time about diets, about how much sleep to get, about how to work out, about how to do financial planning and investing or lawn care tips. And so we follow people's advice all the time and incorporate it into our lives to have a better life. And so at the very least, you can say, well, this is God's lifestyle advice to us, like, hey, you want to have a better life? Think about this. Even if it's not commanded, even if it doesn't apply to Christians, uh, why not listen to God? And so, the question I want you to be thinking of as we go through this psalm is why is taking 24 hours to rest hard for you? Because I imagine that there's, if you're not already doing it, or maybe if, maybe if you are already doing it, there's some resistance to it. And it's difficult, especially if you just heard about it last week and now you're hearing it this week. Is that, wait, so six days I should work, you know, do my work that I make money for, do my chores. And on that seventh day, no chores, no working, doing things that are restful for you. You might have a sense of like, well, I don't want that put on my life. Like, I don't want somebody to give me this very specific way of like, 
24 hours where I don't get to do what I want? Uh, no, I don't want that. And so maybe just asking yourself, why would taking 24 hours to rest be hard for you? So with that, let's go into the psalm, Psalm 92. And I've broken it into three sections. And the first is that God's work makes us glad. Verses 1 through 3. God's work makes us glad. Verses 1 through 3. So he starts off with the sentence, it is good. And then he completes it uh, in three different ways. He says, it is good, good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good to sing praises to your name, almost high. It is good to declare your steadfast love in the morning. And so it's saying this is on the Sabbath, this is a psalm to read, and we enter the Sabbath saying it is good to do this, to give thanks, to sing God's praises, to declare steadfast love. And it's interesting, your steadfast love in the morning, so it's like when, from the moment you, your eyes open up in the morning and you look to your day, you can say God's steadfast love is ahead of me. I can declare it in the morning. And then when you go to bed at night and you're laying in your bed about to go to sleep, you can look back and think, God has been faithful. Look at his faithfulness of his love to be with me the whole day. And these two attributes come from Exodus 34, verse 6, where uh, Moses says, God, show me your glory. And then he says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And then uh, what God actually does is he declares what he's like. He says, I'm a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then these two commands, there's, there's two attributes that are, have abounding in front of them, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And they get picked up all over the place, especially in the Psalms. Of, and they often put it just like this, steadfast love in the morning, faithfulness at night. In the morning when I start my day, what I need to know is that God is going to be steadfast and he's going to love me throughout it. And at the end of the day, when I look back, I can know he's been faithful to do so. And he, or you can even think, while I sleep, uh, he is faithful to care for me, even then. And he says, you're going to do it to the music of lute, and harp to the melody of the lyre. And then in verse 4 it says, uh, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. So why is he doing this? Why? Because you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. I think earlier I said this section is verses 1 through 3. It's actually verses 1 through 4. God, God's work makes us glad. But, you know, verse 4 answers, Why put all of this to music? I'm going to thank you, praise you, declare your steadfast love and faithfulness, and then I'm going to do it with these instruments. Why put it to music? And Connor and I were thinking about, like, what is special about music? I think we all know that music is special, that it does something. Like, it can get in our brains and just kind of sit there. It can speak to our hearts. Like, have you ever just started listening to a song and then you cried? Uh, it's like music can very quickly take something that came from deep within someone else and kind of touch something deep within us. And so Connor and I... Uh, came up with this reason that we want to say in our services that music speaks the language of the heart. And so we sing in order to enjoy God's love for us and to express our love for him together in one voice. And if you think about it, I, I know I haven't done research on what are all the institutions that do singing, but it is a weird thing, right? Like we come together and do sing-alongs every Sunday. Like that doesn't happen very often. Like let's do, do a sing-along. And I've heard... Some people say that you don't find that in other religions, that there isn't the singing, there isn't the joy. Um, but our God gives us joy. He, his works make us glad. And so we sing as a way to express to him, his, to, tell, to celebrate his love for us, and also to express our love for him. And then verses one, uh, 5 through 15, we're going to break that into two parts. He said, your works make me glad. And then he's going to talk about what are the works of God. So verses uh, 4 Sorry, 5 through 9, 
it's talking about God works against the wicked uh, or the fool. God works against the wicked or the fool. Verse 5, he says, How great are your works, O Lord. So he just got done saying, You've made me glad by your work. And then he says, How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. But though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. And so he's describing this is the way of the wicked, the way of the fool, is that, uh, one, they don't know or understand God, and two, they sprout like grass but eventually perish. I don't know if you guys... Lawns look good right now. Mine doesn't. It's perishing because uh, there's not been any rain. But it's like, well, grass might be there for a minute, but it's like, whoop, anybody can pluck it out or Hudson might run over it with his, you know, tractor that he drives around on. I've got these patches where he's, you know, made a path and it's like, oh, I guess i got to replant that. So grass is like, it can go away very quickly. It can be flourishing and then perish. <clears throat> and so he's saying, look, this is the way of the wicked, the way of the fool. They don't know God and they sprout and then they're gone. And he makes this contrast, verse 8, uh, that you, O Lord, are on high forever. And in verse 7, they're doomed to destruction forever, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. There's not going to be an end to God. And then he says in verse 9, behold. And behold is like a, hey, take notice. Hey, check this out. Look, like I want you to see this. Like imagine it. Like imagine you're looking at somebody. And he says, check this out. Uh, the, and God's enemies are going to perish, and evildoers are going to be scattered. But God, he is always going to be. And so there's this contrast of time that eventually God's enemies are going to perish, they're going to be scattered, but God's going to be on high forever. He will outlast his enemies. They are here and then gone, but he's not. And so I might ask, well, who are God's enemies? And it might be like, Sabbath? It's supposed to be a day of like connecting with God, of resting. Why a psalm about God's enemies perishing and him defeating it? We might be like, I wanted a little more grace here. I want you to talk about a little more grace and love and that kind of stuff here, God. Why are we talking about enemies on the Sabbath? And we might ask, well, who is God's enemy? And we see throughout the Bible, it's those who exalt themselves, who make themselves high. And that's what they uh, show here, that they are, you know, these people are maybe trying to exalt themselves, but look who's on high forever. It's God. And God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He exalts those who humble themselves. And he humbles those who exalt themselves. So it's like, okay, who's the way of the person who is prideful, the way of the person who exalts themselves, this is where they're going to go. Maybe it looks like they're getting ahead in life. Maybe it looks like everything is going fine for them, but it's, they're like grass. They will eventually perish, and it's not going to last. But then lastly, God works against the wicked or the fool, but God also works for the righteous. Continuing uh, in verse 10, going to the end of the psalm. He talks about, uh, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. And so he's talking about he's brought down the enemies, but what's happened to me? You've exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. And this really, what he's going to go through and catalog is, this is the way of the righteous. And it doesn't totally focus on what is a righteous person like, but it focuses on what God's going to do for the righteous person, what God himself is going to do for them. So first he exalts their horn. Um, and this is an image of a bull like lifting up their horns after winning a battle. This is what I saw in a book, and I like tried to find a YouTube video, like, what does this actually look like? And I'm thinking, you know, bulls, when they're attacking, they might be have their horns down to attack, and then maybe up to, like, in victory kind of thing. Like, okay, I'm, I finished, I don't need to attack anymore. Um, but 
it's a common biblical symbol of victory, especially of being rescued from oppression, that God takes people and lifts them up so that now they're in victory because of what he did. And then it says that he's going to pour fresh oil on the righteous. And Genesis, or generous hosts in the Middle East provided oil for their guests to anoint their heads. Uh, and this would give them, you know, if you're at a dinner, it's like, okay, everyone gets a little oil. It's almost like a party favor. And you come in, you get this oil, and you get to anoint your head, and, and it takes away the dryness of the hot climate. And also, if it was really nice, it'd have fragrance in it, so the whole room is just filled with these, like, nice fragrances. And it preserved their complexion. And you can think about it maybe like, you know, I don't know business class flying or something. It's like, oh, I get that warm, hot towel. Uh, that's like, you know, you're like being, you really have a good host. It's like, oh, I get to relax. So you come to this thing, you get this oil with this nice fragrance. It's like, I'm getting like VIP treatment. And it's cool to think about who's doing this. It says God is going to do this, that God is going to host this party. And he's like, I'm going to provide this oil for you. I'm going to give it to you so you can anoint yourselves. And then he says, he, God brings their enemies down. In verse 9, it talks about God's enemies. But now he says, my enemies I've seen fall in verse 11. And you see that God humbles and opposes the wicked or the proud. And then he says God is going to make them flourish. They're planted in God's presence. They flourish in his courts. And they bear fruit in old age, full of sap and green. And maybe you're like, that's not quite the quote I have on my mirror. Who do I want to be full of sap and green? But it's this image of this tree that's strong and vibrant and fruitful and productive and is stable and strong. And we went, well, why does God do all this? Why does he go through this effort? Verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. And so this is, what we've just been describing is the gospel. It's, you know, in the Old Testament. It's what is God going to do for those who humble themselves? Uh, those who humble themselves before him and don't exalt themselves. That God is going to exalt them. That he gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. That God himself is going to do these things for us. And we see similar words uh, that end this psalm in Ephesians chapter 1. That why has God done all these things? Ephesians chapter 1. Why has he adopted us? Why has he redeemed us? Why has he forgiven us? Why has he chosen us in love? Why has he sealed us and marked us as his own? Why has he rescued us? And over and over again it says to the praise of of his glorious grace. Why would God do this thing for us, uh, that for the, those who humble themselves? It's to the praise of his glorious grace, to who he is. And so the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of resting, as we're seeing, in God's work, both as creator, that he's made this world for us to enjoy and to uh, look after, and also in his work as our redeemer, that he rescues us, that if we're pushed down by enemies or pushed down by life or pushed down by lies and Satan or hostility towards us, that God himself lifts us up and redeems us, raises our horns in victory. And he says, and we rest in his work as one who works for righteousness, for the righteous and against the foolish. We rest in his work, what he does that makes us flourish. And we see Jesus teaching on this a lot, uh, on the idea of the Sabbath, even if he's not saying the words, where he says, uh, seek first God's kingdom and all these things, the things you're worrying about will be added to you. And so every time we come to the, it's the sixth day of Sabbath is tomorrow, but I have a whole lot to do. It's like, you know, seek first God's kingdom, his will, and let it be taken care of by God. Or we see also where he says, well, look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers. 
They're not worrying about tomorrow, storing up. And so don't you do that either. Today has enough worry of its own. You don't have to be like, I have to work tomorrow on the Sabbath because if I don't, everything's going to be, you know, nothing's going to go well. I'm not going to be provided for. He says, no, don't trust God that he can provide for you in this. And we're talking about God's works that Romans 8, he works all things together for those who love him to make us more like Jesus, fruitful, strong, stable, secure. So God works for the humble. And that message really was the foundation of Jesus' message about the kingdom. That Guess what? If you want to be part of the kingdom, uh, God's working for the humble. Think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for Jesus' name. He says, the kingdom is coming to those people. That at the end, there's going to be this big reversal that as you're looking around at the world, you might be like, why are all the evil people flourishing and we're struggling? He says, but wait, remember God's work. What he's going to do is he's going to lift you up. They're like grass. They're going to be gone, but he's going to, he's going to be strengthening you and giving you nourishment, and he's going to lift you up in the end, this idea of reversal at the first will be last. And so as we think about making this personal for our lives, the psalm tells us two types of people. There's those doing it their way, and there's those doing it God's way. That's really like you could sum up the whole Bible. is about how do you do things God's way and not do things your way. And they have two very different outcomes in life. You could be like grass, grass that perishes, or like a strong, healthy, fruitful, vibrant tree. So when you look to your future, we talked to the, or in the beginning of this, the sermon about when we were preparing for our future, retirement and health and all these things. But when you look to the future, what kind of person do you see? And you might ask, where is your way of life leading? What kind of person is your way of life? What you're doing now, the small deposits you're making now, what kind of person is that leading to in the future? What small deposits are you making now that will add up down the road? And the warning in this psalm is, warning on the Sabbath every week, you have this reminder, is that you're taking steps each day either down your way or God's way. And on the Sabbath, God's people get together and they remember, yes, we want to do things God's way. Maybe my week was hard. Maybe I saw my corrupt boss flourishing. Maybe I saw this thing happen on the news. But look, the way where I'm taking steps, I'm putting small deposits to becoming the kind of person that God wants me to be. And the truth is that all of us have lived our own way that leads to death. And then when Jesus comes, he calls himself the way. Uh, he both shows us the way to do life God's way, and he also makes a way for us to come back to God. Jesus is the way of how we ought to be humans, of how we ought to relate to God, of how we can come back to God after turning our backs on him. And uh, he perished in our place so that we may flourish. So now we follow him as the, the way, and we're told, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Rest in me. Find rest for your souls. He wants us to have rest. And the, John 15, abide in the vine. I'm the vine. You're like branches. The only way you're going to live is if you're connected to me. And so if you want to be like grass that just perishes here today and gone tomorrow, that's fine. But if you want to be connected, if you want to be strong, full of sap, being nourished and enriched, you need to rest in me, to abide in me, to make your home in me. And so our call to action from this you know, psalm is e- very easy to find, is that practicing Sabbath is surrendering to God's way of doing life. That every Sabbath, uh, the worship, we can get together on Sunday and throughout the day and remember, oh yes, God, this, this is how, who you are. This is how life's supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing in all of it. And 
surrendering to God's way of doing life is surrendering to his design, his blueprint. And the blueprint he gave us for life is 24 hours each week to stop and rest emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. And I have this little plant label. And when you get plants, you get you read it and you know it'll say like, well, what are the conditions and how big it's going to be? And this one says part shade uh, to shade. And God basically gives us a little plant label for each and every human being. Like, what is it going to take for you to flourish? Like, what are the conditions that we need in order to flourish as human beings? And you could maybe read this plant label and be like, well, it says it's going to flourish in part shade to, sh- to shade, and maybe this actually wouldn't be as big as a deal as one that says needs full sun. And you could ask the person at the nursery and be like, it says full sun, but can I put it under my pine trees where there's only shade? And the person could say, well, you can, but it's going to die. (laughs) It needs full sun. It can't flourish in the shade. And so we might ask about, like, well, God, do I have to do the Sabbath? Well, no, but you, if you want to live, you should do it. If you want to flourish, you should do it. If you want to be dying slowly uh, and not doing things like, um, of course, you know, the Sabbath isn't the end-all, be-all. Last week we talked about how the Sabbath is not more important than Jesus. Jesus is our source of life and spiritual life in God and our salvation. But then God gives us the Sabbath and says, hey, this is the lifestyle that's going to lead to flourishing for you. This is how I've set you up to work and how I've set the earth up to work is that I want you to follow this so you can flourish. And we're a people who surrender to God's design for life, his way of life that leads to flourishing. And so what makes this psalm fitting for the Sabbath? Why this psalm? on the Sabbath? Well, because it's a day for gaining perspective. Uh, that we s- Have you ever been maybe in a moment where you just, uh, happens to me all the time, where it's like, I'm just so focused on a task or getting somewhere or being late and I'm being kind of, you know, uh, impatient with my kids and talking harsh with them and all of a sudden it's like, okay, let's just, let's just take a breath for a moment. Let's catch my breath. I love these kids. I don't want to talk to them this way. It's fine if I'm five minutes late. It's okay if that doesn't get done. And it's like this perspective gaining. And that's what the Sabbath is for our week. That we flurrying around, you know, all through the week, working and providing for ourselves and you know, doing this and grocery shopping and chores and talking to people. And then it's like, well, we might start getting stressed, start seeing uh, the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. And then the Sabbath is like, okay, God, I've been, I've been running around scrambling. I haven't even been thinking about you in the picture. I haven't been trusting you. I haven't been expressing joy and peace and patience and it's a day for us to just catch our breath and to stop and to slow down. It's a day for perspective, for recalibrating, for recentering on God's way. And he says it's to be 24 hours together, not spread out. Uh, not like, well, 24 hours, he says, to rest. So, you know, I do well, seven, that'd be it doesn't divide into 24. But anyway, if it was like three, three and a half hours a day, like that, I'll spread it out. Three and a half hours a day, I'll stop working at seven, I'll go to bed at 10.30, that'll be like my rest. No, it doesn't, it's different. It's more uh, fulfilling and more challenging to make it 24 hours. And what we do, I'm just going to give suggestions, uh, is we do Saturday evening to Sunday evening, uh, and then we have church service or we get to worship together like the psalm tells us to do. Uh, we stop our usual work, I've been helped by that word usual, um, and maybe I'm going beyond what the Old Testament says, but you know, for some of us, landscaping would be work. I'm not doing that on the Sabbath. For me, I get to be outside. 
Uh, Hudson's having fun playing, and it's much different than my usual work. My usual work is talking and typing, and so for me to get in the dirt and do things, it's like this is I just this is so fun to be outside and do this thing. Um, and Katie and I, we we don't get things done, and we look for what brings rest to our souls: walks, reading, naps. I'm not really a napper, but maybe you are. Uh, connect with God and others, and avoid what creates restlessness: shopping. Uh, Technology often will put our phones in a drawer, uh, so we try to stay away from those things. And the seventh day, the Sabbath, should look different from all the others. And maybe you're thinking at this point, and I gave you all hopefully got the little slip that has like getting started with Sabbath, so you didn't have to write all this down. Um, but maybe you're thinking at this point, if you didn't get one, they're on the table back there. Maybe you're thinking, well, sounds good, but here's why it won't work for me. Here's why taking 24 hours off won't work for me. And perhaps you're saying that, but we're in a dangerous place when we're saying that to God. Or we're saying, what you've told me to do is optional. Thank you for that suggestion, God, but you know, not, not for me. And we're saying to God, I know my situation better than you do, God, so I know what's best for me. And the first and every sin is rejecting God's way because we think we know better. That is what every sin is. And so be very careful if that's how you feel yourself responding. That like, well, this doesn't work for me. And we're saying like, yeah, God, you've given me your way, but I kind of know better. And so thanks, but no thanks. And imagine a doctor telling you the way you're living is killing you. We'd want to hear their treatment plan. And it's a choice between life and death, between flourishing and perishing. It's high stakes. And we wouldn't, you know, if we say to that doctor like, yeah, uh, you know, I kind of like your plan, but here's why it won't for, work for me. Like, do I have to do all that? And they would say, you don't have to, but you're going to die if you don't do all that. And so it's God giving us this uh, way to flourish, doing it his way. And practicing Sabbath, why it's difficult, is it exercises our trust muscle. That's why it's challenging. That's why we resist it. And it's also why it's so good for us, because we need to let go of things that we hold on to. And on that little slip, you have what we... Oh, you have the four G's on the bottom of how you can exercise your trust muscle. And first is God is great, so I don't have to be in control. And so you can ask yourself, well, what do I need, what control do I need to let go of? Uh, like, these are just helpful ways of, like, if I'm going in the Sabbath, you need to let go of things. I guarantee that there will be. Second, God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. Whose approval do you need to let go of? Uh, I'll give you an example. It's like one that you guys will be able, well, you'll be able to um, relate to it in terms of if people from work or people work, reach out to you to do things that would, you would consider work on the Sabbath. Instead, if somebody reaches out to me to do something ministry-wise, well, Katie and I are on a Sabbath, I say, I'll get to that Monday. And so I have to let go of fear of their approval. Like, it's like supposed to be my pastor, not even taking care of me, like when I reach out to him. I have to let go of that. And God is good, so I don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. And so it's what satisfaction from elsewhere do you need to let go of? Maybe it's like getting things done. I feel really good when I do that. Or I really like, you know, watching TV. And it's like, it's a day that should look different from all the others. Lastly, God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. That's what ways of proving yourself do you need to let go of? I feel like, well, I prove myself by getting stuff done. Like, I don't know if God really likes me. You know, we sometimes will say, like, well, the devil doesn't take a day off, so neither do I. Well, do we really want to be taking our lifestyle advice from the devil, for one? Uh, let's take our lifestyle advice from God, who says, I took a day off. I mean, not, not God was like pooped or something, but he's like, no, this is the pattern, is that I've made this, and I want you to have days where you rest uh, in me. So what I want to give you it, for the summer, if you're thinking of this as a challenge, I want to say just accept the challenge. Uh, rest in God's work on the Sabbath. 
for 24 hours. And my suggestion would be to go from Saturday evening to Sunday evening, that we're all getting to do it together. And there's power doing it as a community. And maybe you're like, I don't know if this would work for me. Well, just say you're going to experiment for the summer, and you're going to try to figure out what it would look like. And rest in Him. Your work is not what makes you flourish. His work is. And this is a God-ordained way to connect with God, to trust God, to be close to God. And we want to be a people who surrender to God's design for life, to his blueprint for us flourishing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we just do not have to prove ourselves for your love. We don't have to be in control of everything. We don't have to fear other people's approval. We can rest in yours. And we can turn to you as the greatest sort of source of our satisfaction. Lord, would you make us a people who are resting in you, in your work that you do on our behalf, lifting us up, anointing us with oil, taking care of us. Lord, you help us to place ourselves in your hands. In your son's name we pray. Amen.